here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content's added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another Books with Hooks. Today we're throwing it back old school where Carly and Cece are critiquing the same three query letters. So for those of you who follow us on Ko-fi and who support us there monthly, you will have six critique letters for you to access today. Right, Carly, will you kick us off with that first query letter? Dear Cece, Bianca, and Carly, thank you for making such an informative and straight-to-the-point podcast. I'm a big fan. I queried Cece because you have high-concept sci-fi on your wish list and a great list of stories. I'm seeking representation for my debut novel, The Girl in the Zoo. 
complete at 70,000 words. The Girl in the Zoo is a work of speculative fiction that could be described as a reverse ex machina meets Matt Haig's The Humans. Mirren Blaze is imaginative and empathetic, but spending the last six years as the only exhibit in the Zoo for Endangered Humans has rendered those traits ineffective. Mirren, who is held captive by robots, yearns for two things, emotional connection and escape from captivity. When the Borgs introduce a new human exhibit, Mirren is activated. Though Pedro is handsome and potentially dangerous, Mirren feels like escape might finally be possible. When the stoic Borgs start changing and appear to have feelings, Mirren must re-examine everything she knows to be true. In the end, Mirren will be forced to face the truth about the zoo and her family and decide who is worth saving, herself or the Borgs. I write TV film, enjoy being a boy mom to both humans and cats. I live in LA by way of Massachusetts, where I have performed my written works at The Moth, Rob Olympic, and The Comedy Store. I'll soon release a new short fiction podcast, The Strange Chronicles, which follows a female noir detective who investigates supernatural mysteries. I'm a proud member of SCBWI and the Thoreau Society. I've attached the first five pages. Thank you for your consideration. Most sincerely, Jennifer. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Okay, Cece, will you give us your take on that? This is such a great hook. Like, we must discuss this whole human zoo thing and what a great hook this is. I thought it was so original, so creative, such a great job. I do think the plot paragraph could just give us a little bit more. I know this is a running theme over here at the podcast, and I think it is one with good reason. We want to feel really curious with specificity. So for example, the truth about the zoo and her family. When I read that, I thought to myself, oh, she's there with her family, which made me wonder like, if she was, for example, trying to plan an escape. Maybe she had found a way to escape herself, but not take her little brother. Like My brain started thinking of all these possibilities, but now that I've read the pages, I know her family isn't there. So a little bit more clarity on what that means and and, and her family since the family isn't there. Also with re-examine everything she knows to be true. That's very introspective and that's awesome because I do get the sense that this is a quiet literary speculative novel, which is amazing. It's one of my favorite things to read. I'm not complaining, but I do think we have to make a little bit more of an effort to put plot on the page, especially since the, the climax, which is decide who was worth saving, herself or the Borgs, doesn't seem like that much of a Sophie's Choice situation since it's like, well, I'll save me. I do, of course, understand that something has happened that has made it clear that the Borgs are worth saving, but I still want to know a little bit more about what that is. So I say this knowing how hard it is and with so much respect for the author because I know she doesn't want to give anything away, but can we just know a little bit more? That's where I am with this query letter, but I'm fascinated. I 100% would have kept on scrolling down and reading the pages if this had been just a regular submission. I think it's a very cool hook. What Cece meant there without once saying the word, which is very unusual for Cece, is lean into specificity. Right. Okay. Carly, your take on it? This is so utterly fascinating. Like, who would not look at this and be like, this is so interesting. So I think you you have us all kind of like at your mercy here. And it's kind of, it's your ball to drop. You know what I mean? Because this is so interesting. So I think... I mean, Zoo for Endangered Humans, like how brilliant is this? You deserve all the applause. There's a couple things that I'm not sure what means in the context of this setup. So there's something that says, when the Borgs introduce a new human exhibit, Mirren is activated. And I, I was thinking, I don't know what activated means. Does that mean like something in her change? Is that part of the technical world? And then we introduce, although Pedro was handsome. So I didn't know if like activated is supposed to be like aroused in terms of like they're a zoo and they're mating. Like I wasn't really sure exactly what activation <laughs> meant. Was it technical? Was it relational? So I would just love to know that. 
with the Borgs are trying to get them to mate. Like, that is also a really, really, really interesting thing. So I would just want to know a little bit about that. And overall, I, I think it's really interesting. I agree. I think there's that vagueness with the family. I think we're going to get to this a little bit more in the pages about the family and, and why her and like why she was the one that was chosen or if she was chosen. We're going to get into that a little bit more in the pages. So I think the pages will help do a lot of work for this. But I think just based on the pitch alone, you should be getting some quests here because it's, it's utterly fascinating. And I love the kind of things where we're exploring our world just in a different context and layer the kind of sci-fi spec fic on top of it. So I think it's brilliant. One small note, I just noticed a typo when I was reading it out loud. You say I'm a proud member of, and then I think think you mean SCBWI and you wrote SCWBI. Small thing, but obviously a correction to make. Wonderful. Kali, yeah, Cece? What I wanted to add is that one of the reasons I know this is special is because I start having all these theories about the story on my own. Like, for example, I'm thinking Pedro is probably a Borg too. It's why they've been examining her for a year. And really, he's just a Borg in human, like a human suit or whatever. Like Westworld situation, that HBO show. And probably that's what she's going to find out. Like, And again, I have no reason to think this other than my own imagination. But it just shows what a cool hook this is. I was, uh, same as Carly, thinking about, is there a mating program at the zoo? Because so many zoos are about getting animals in captivity to mate and to perpetuate the species, etc. And that's always so tricky. So I think there's so many really interesting implications that could happen here. See, you two just have sex in your mind all day. That's what it is. <laughs> it's weirdly not about sex. Not that I'm, not that I'm disagreeing with that statement. Uh, it, it weirdly isn't about that. It's, it's really about like power and control in terms of you being captive. And I mean, if you think about what we do to animals, and if you turn that around and did it to humans, that really fascinates me on that level. But yes, yeah. I do generally have sex on the brain. Yes. Carly? I can't defend myself to that one. I'm just going to mute myself. Okay, Cece, do you want to give us an indication of what's in the opening pages before this whole thing falls completely off the rails? Uh, there is no sex on the opening pages, guys. I'm so sorry to disappoint our listeners. Okay, so here's what's happening. We have our protagonist being examined by a Borg, which is something that happens every day. He takes her temperature and measurements, and she's essentially like alone with her thoughts throughout this examination. She does observe the Borg a little bit, but there's a lot of catching up the reader. She wonders if she's the last human alive because when she was captured, it felt like humans were losing the war that they were fighting with the Borgs. We learn that usually all she eats all day are nutrition packs, which are not tasty. But today it's harvest day, which means that she might get to re-eat real vegetables. So she's really excited. And she heads to the gardens after the examination. So that's essentially the plot. Wonderful. Thank you. Okay, Carly, what was your take on those opening pages? I don't have a lot of critical notes. I mean, I think one of the things I was really interested in finding out was when the writer was going to reveal things to us and how they were going to build this world. Those are the two things on my mind. So I thought the world building was great. I'm always so hesitant because often it's done not as great as this. So I was like pleasantly surprised. I thought there was really really good world building here. It starts with the first kind of made up word is really simple. It says the weather light is bright today. And then we know she says it's not the real sun and I miss the real sun. So we get like these small, small things where we're like slowly being introduced to the world. That's the thing we want to know. How different is this world from our world? And another thing I really liked was I think just introducing the themes of humanity, what is human, what is human about our faces and our bodies and our interactions between this female character and the Borg. That was a nice kind of through the idea that they are 
doing these medical tests on her, we're able to kind of see this initial interaction. So I just love we're doing character development or Borg development while we're doing plot. And that's so, so important. I, I definitely was kind of waiting for the reveal in terms of when are we going to find out information. And it was it's pretty early on. So I think it's on page two-ish, three-ish, we get some information. So here's the rub. Even though I hate being in here, there's no telling what life is like outside the dome. When I arrived here, I'd lost everything and it seemed like the world was ending. There was a war and the losing. So we get these little snippets here and there. One of the things I really loved was, and now we're trying to figure out why her, right? Like, why is she the one that's in this world? And why is she the character that they took? Or is she the only one? And she has this line that says, I might be the last one human. I mean, I can't be sure. And it does seem completely ridiculous. Why in the hell me, Mirren Blaze, cashier at the food farm mart would be preserved as the last human. No matter how thick the loneliest gets, I feel a certain responsibility to stay alive, to do my best as the last possible representative of humanity. And I just, I love that framing in that this idea that this classism element that we're starting to introduce to this, like every single human being is valuable. And the fact that she feels like because she was a cashier at Food Farm Mart, that she isn't as valuable to society as other people. But clearly, for one reason or another, either the Borgs felt this way, or she had the gumption to figure out how to stay alive. She is the one that is chosen. And I just love that, that just like every woman, like every human, we're all the same underneath. And and I so I just love these underpinning these, these early themes that we're starting to see arise. And most of my notes are just like, this is great. This is good. I think I'm pretty much ready by page three and four to move to a new scene. I did think we spent a little bit too much time in this opening moment. And there's a couple times I really like the sometimes I think it forgets how delicate I am compared to a Borg. And I wasn't sh- Oh, she's talking about her sanity. Yeah. So she says, sometimes I think it forgets how delicate I am compared to a Borg. But if I start to fear Borgy again, I will lose the progress I have made with my mental state. And so I think maybe we're dwelling on that a little bit too early because we're introducing a lot. So I would like to her to like have moved to a new scene and then start having these thoughts. But it's all good. It's just like, where's the placement of these reveals? I think that's just the hard thing when you're doing any sort of world building. But this is really utterly fascinating. Awesome, Carly. Thanks. Before we go to Cece, I just want to say when I was teaching my specificity course, I was saying that sometimes the unexpected when it comes to specificity can really make a huge impact. And in terms of making her like a cashier or something, that is the unexpected because we kind of go, if Borgs are going to keep someone, they're going to keep like the brightest scientist of our time, the greatest minds of our time, etc. And so it's, it's unexpected that this is the person that they've chosen to keep. And these are things that make it feel like we are telling the truth. Anne Lamott said that writing is telling the truth. And even when it comes to fiction, if you can convince your reader that you're telling the truth, then you've done an especially, especially good job. And it's those kinds of details that really make something feel like the truth. Okay, Cece? I think these are really, really strong pages. And I do have notes, but I want to be clear that this is me taking something that's already really good and just offering suggestions on how to elevate it further. One thing I thought is, what if you had another Borg there and you showed the interaction between her and and Borgi and then Borgi and this other Borg? And I'll explain why through an example. At one point, Borgi takes her temperature and says 97.5 degrees Fahrenheit. First of all, this incredibly intelligent creature who's far superior in terms of technology to humans is not using Fahrenheit, okay? Because it's just not it's just not going to happen. You're going to use Celsius or some other metric form, I don't know. But it would make sense for them to use Fahrenheit with her because she knows Fahrenheit. 
So this is kind of like, kinda, again, how we talk to other creatures, right? Like when I'm talking to Baba, I use a different voice. So I would really like to see that kind of difference in treatment of how Borgi talks to her and how she observes him talking to her and how Borgi talks to his peer, because that would show, that would unpack so much and that would just make the scene a little bit more dynamic. Another thing that I think would help is because right now we're way too in her head. I do appreciate that that's important, that's a part of it, and it is good. But like Carly said, after like two or three pages, I was like, can we just move on? Because I think we've heard enough. There's a lot of explanation. So, oh, by the way, before I, I get into the explanation, sometimes you're referring to Borgi as it, and sometimes as she. So pick one. This is happening on page two. Actually, page one, but page two, because the first page is a query letter. And also, anyway. also just there, Cece, in terms of the world building, this opens a very interesting question, because is gender a concept in this future world? If you just think of how we've evolved so much now as human beings, when people were writing these kind of futuristic things 50 years ago, of course, gender was important because we were not having conversations around gender then. So in terms of your world building, if there is a he or if it is a she in terms of the cyborgs, why? And if they've evolved to a point where they are gender neutral or whatever, then that's something that, that also needs to be incorporated into the world building. Carry on, Cece. So here's an example of what I mean by too much giving away in a way that's way too much explanation. So I thought it was looking at me. I cannot be trusted, though. My desperation for a connection is deep. Then again, Borgi could be becoming sentient. Okay, so that is too on the nose because we know from the query letter that they do start becoming sentient and that it's important that that be a surprise to the protagonist. The protagonist can't figure that out based on simply a, oh, then again, this could happen. It's not leveraging the reveal in, in a way that ramps up stakes and the tension and that's really important. And another example of something that felt like a leap is when she's talking about herself being the last human simply because they were losing the war. I think she should fear that she's the last human. That makes more sense, but not assume because there's no reason for her to assume that with any degree of of certainty. She isn't getting any clues. Maybe, again, if there was another Borg there, they could be having a conversation and she could perhaps be learning their language because at this point it's been six years, so maybe she's starting to learn their, their own style of communication. I'm not sure. Or maybe they um, don't communicate with words at all. Maybe they're communicating in ways that she can't understand and she feels so alone because she's not a part of the communication. But even if they don't use words, maybe she could start f figuring out that, for example, three beeps tends to elicit X reaction, right? Like, even if it's not language that we understand, which it probably isn't, like, we start decoding things. We start looking for patterns, especially after six years. So I think one of the challenges is that this is in the first person. And world building in the first person is harder. This is something that Bianca taught me, actually, in our very first episode that we all recorded together. It's easier to world build in the third person. So... Again, a lot of explanation. I do think that what's happening with a lot of explanation is that your attention isn't being leveraged in the, to its full extent. So if you want, try writing it in the third person and see what happens. And if not, just go through this and try to highlight everything that's pure explanation. For example, the line about the nutrition packs, the line about where the garden is. She isn't talking to anyone, so it wouldn't make sense for her to be thinking these things to herself. So I would try to just really just keep an eye out for that. Another question I had, and I don't need this answered now, but I am very curious, so it's something for you to consider is, what happens at this zoo in terms of like the exhibit portion of it? Like, 
are other Borgies visiting and tapping on the window and is she expected to perform tricks? Like, I would really like to see something like that, right? So so even if we're not at the stage where we can see that, maybe, for example, while she's interacting with Borgie, Borgie could be saying something like, it would be great if today you could, I don't know, twirl or, or whatever the trick is for the crowd because we have an important visitor. I don't know. I don't know if that makes sense, but I just feel like that would elevate this further and it's it's a really good book like we've been talking about it with a lot of excitement for 10 minutes so obviously it's good so congratulations yeah and another thought is there's different zoos that serve different purposes so there's zoos for entertainment there's zoos for education zoos for conservation zoos for research purposes so in terms of what tc said here it's a good way for us to get an indication of the purpose of the zoo because it'll say so much about this new society as well. All right, Cece, will you read us that second query letter? All right. So, dear Bianca, Cece, and Carly, I love the podcast, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I would be overjoyed for my query letter to be reviewed by the three of you, especially Carly. I have a funny story. The first time I heard your podcast, my wife and I were on a road trip. When I heard Carly giving critique, I looked at my wife and said, she, referring to Carly, is going to be my agent. My wife laughed and asked, why do you think that? I said, I just have a feeling. Well, that was before I knew she didn't rep middle grade. So at the very least, I would love to get her feedback. Who knows? Maybe the stars will align and my gut feeling will come true anyway. It's never let me down before. I am looking for representation for Izzy and the Red Wolf, my middle grade fantasy adventure novel. It's complete at 55,000 words. Izzy and the Red Wolf would appeal to readers of The Accidental Apprentice, Wilder Lore Number 1 by Amanda Foodie, Endling by Catherine Applegate, and Cinders and Sparrows by Stefan Bachman. Jacob was left on Auntie's porch when he was a baby. He doesn't know he's the grandson of the evil werewolf king who lives in a hidden city named Celeste. Nor does he, or anyone else for that matter, know werewolves exist. Jacob believes Celeste is a city made of gold, lost beyond the haunted Pontiac Forest. There's an old treasure hunter claiming to have seen it. He even has a map. Jacob has dreamed about looking for the city, but would never venture out on his own. First of all, he's afraid of Alpha, the black wolf that follows him around. And secondly, Auntie has forbidden it. But when Jacob meets the charming and quick-witted Izzy, who spells her name with a lowercase i on purpose, and she needs his help, that all changes. In a matter of life and death, Accompanied by Pocket, Jacob's pet mountain ermine, they'll need to outwit ugly mosquito fairies, outrun Alpha, navigate the haunted forest, and return before the dawn of the next full moon. But just when they think Celeste is within reach, they'll discover a map they'd been given led them straight into a trap. Although Izzy and the Red Wolf stands on its own, I see it as a series. I'm currently working on book two. I'm an avid outdoorsman, hunter, and lover of wildlife. My goal is to tell stories that encourage young readers to explore the wilderness, to create a desire to explore the unknown and feel all their imagination can offer. Currently, my wife and I reside in Salem, Utah, where I own and operate a real estate brokerage. We have two grandkids, Nova and Calvin, and my favorite writing buddy is Ollie, a 130-pound German shepherd. 
Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Okay, Kali, what was your take on that query? All right. So I this person didn't leave their name, but I have communicated with them on social media because he checks all the time. He's like, Carly, have you updated your wish list? Are you accepting middle grade yet? And I'm like, not yet, not yet, not yet. So yeah, I'm definitely not. I'm not your middle grade person. It's just one of the categories I don't get. And I feel like as an agent, I get so many categories. I work on tons of stuff, but middle grade is still this like big hole kind of in my understanding of what works, you know, and as an agent, it's my job to understand the market. So middle grade has just never been my thing. But as my children are growing up, I've been buying more middle grade and like trying to understand it. So I'm like taking middle grade on as a research project as my children read more. But as of right now, it's still kind of a black hole in my list in terms of what I'm working on. So there's a couple of reasons that I have trouble with middle grade. And this is such a me thing. But since this person kind of addressed this to me somewhat, I just kind of want to speak to it. So one of the things I find tricky about middle grade, uh, personally, is that is the stakes for middle grade, because these are children going on an adventure. <laughs> and so when we talk about life and death as a stake, because in, in this query, it says in a matter of life and death, accompanied by pocket, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera, when we talk about life and death, like death means the book is over. Death means this child dies. And so I don't ever think that life and death as a kind of overarching stake for something like middle grade or even YA sometimes personally works for me because we know that the kid lives because the book continues. So I find, I think we need a stake other than life and death here. And so that's why I'm having a bit of trickiness with this particular query is because I just have so many questions and I'm going to do my class like, like, I'm confused. I need like a little meme to like have my little, my little spiel. But, but yeah, I'm confused here. So how, like, how does he know about this world if he was left on his auntie's porch? And if he doesn't, like, and he, if he doesn't know he's the grandson, what does the auntie know? Like, what has she told him? There's just a lot of holes here for me in terms of understanding. And this is why I always say I have so much empathy for, for people who write queries about world building because you have to build this whole world for me and you have to tell me what the stakes are and like why it matters to this character and why it matters to me the reader so I think this comes down to me again not being the ideal reader for this but I think it also comes down to what's at stake here like what's at stake if he if he succeeds on this adventure what's at stake if he doesn't and I I'm a little concerned I just can't see that here and I can't feel that and I don't understand it. And so I think it's just life the life and death stake is just not working for me. I went back and checked out the um, Amanda Foodie's cover copy for The Accidental Apprentice so I could understand a little bit more like what the framing might be. And so I think why Amanda Foodie's works and it was New York Times bestseller, like, you know, amazing, amazing project. It isn't so much the life and death theme here. The hook is like Barkley must make a difficult choice, return to the home and rules he's always known or embrace the adventure awaiting him. And I think that's potentially what we're missing here is, is he going to join this world or not? And why that matters. I think that's what's missing in this query and what the accidental apprentice has. So that's kind of my, my query analysis. Great, Carly. Thank you. Cece, your take? So lovely author, I know that I am not your dream agent. And so please take this criticism with a grain of salt. I have two notes. One, I want to know how old Jacob is. You did not tell me and I am curious. So please include that. And the second note, because this is very much a CC note, could we change the whole Izzy needs his help thing to like they both need each other's helps? 
Like, let's not write a story where the girl is helpless and needs his help. Let's just not do that. Let's make sure that it's mutual because it just makes it better and more interesting. And also it makes him vulnerable and a good protagonist should be vulnerable. So again, take this with a grain of salt, but I think that that would elevate this further. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. I think that was one of the elements when I first started reading Harry Potter that I absolutely loved is that Hermione so often came to Harry's rescue, even though he was the protagonist of the series, she was so much smarter and he was constantly turning to her for help in many of these instances. Okay, Carly, could you give the listeners an understanding of what's in those opening pages? All right, here we go. So we have our main character kind of watching some archery practice, and then they see some kind of commotion down by the seaport where a large pirate ship has docked. And then they go to the port. They're witnessing two friends, Jesse and Theo, dragging two prisoners from the ship. So they are taking them to the courthouse. And then our character kind of follows them over to the courthouse. The judge, who we find out is also the mayor. So we're getting this very like, this is a small town. Everybody's wearing multiple hats feeling. So the judge has right away is already ready for them. And they've like come right from the ship to the courthouse. And they are explaining their names, why they're here. And we understand what the crimes are committed. Mr. Porter, failure to repay a debt, and Izzy, an illegal stowaway. And we learn a little bit more about Izzy and the spelling of Izzy's name. Izzy likes Izzy with a lowercase i. And we're just learning some some quirks about the character. Jacob will be our main character. And he gets in trouble with the judge a little bit too for having an animal in courthouse. Awesome. Thank you. Okay, Cece, what was your take on them? My big picture note is that the protagonist right now is too absent from the page. I understand that his role is to be an observer, but he should still have strong opinions and feelings and emotions about what's going on since he's the hero of the story. So I would weave in a little bit more of those strong emotions and opinions. Here are a few examples. So as soon as he sees Izzy, we do get a description on Izzy. However, later there's a line that says, maybe it was that in Tullamore there weren't any other kids my age. And this comes after a long, long paragraph with a lot of description. And I would switch that. If you are a child, let's say, I don't know how old he is, but let's say he's 12. And let's say there are no other 12-year-olds or like 10 slash 14. Like let's say there's no one in your age range in the entire town. The first thing that you're going to think when you see someone your age is, oh my gosh, someone my age. The visceral reaction will be immediate because that's just how visceral reactions work. So I would switch that around because I think that makes it more specific to the protagonist and makes us feel like we're in that scene with him feeling those things with him, excited with him because finally he has someone his own age and maybe he would think, oh gosh, I wish it were a boy or maybe he wouldn't think that. Maybe he'd be super excited that it's a girl. I don't know, but whatever his thoughts are, I want them to be really specific to him since I'm imagining that he's always wanted someone his age. I mean, I would when I were, if I were a kid and I didn't have anyone my age, that's what I would want. I would probably have imaginary friends. I think that there should be a reading of the accusations and the trial. Right now we don't have that and I think that's just essential for us to understand. I also think that when the judge says, get control of him or I'll have him shot. 
there would be a visceral reaction of panic or something to that effect, assuming he is taking the judge seriously, with subsequent layers of emotion such as anger or resentment, because he does love his, his animal and he doesn't want his animal to get shot. So really, these are just examples of ways that I think that you could really flesh out the perspective of the protagonist. Totally okay to have the protagonist observing things, that's fine, that's actually great in many ways, but make sure that we are seeing things through his eyes, things that are incredibly specific to his person. So that's my note. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Carly? All right. So the main thing that stuck out for me was the amount of the character explaining what other people looked like. And I think this is what Cece was getting at with all of the observation. There's a number of times where the character was describing to the reader what people he knows looked like. And I just thought as a human being in the world, you don't always think about that when it's people you know, right? You see them on a daily basis. So I think the only opportunity that the author should take to describe what people look like is the new people coming off the boat, because that would be more powerful. Right now, this character is observing his friends who are taking the pirates off the ship, what the judge looks like. It's very much like every time we meet a new character, we're getting the eye color, height, you know, musculature, what they're wearing, that sort of thing. We don't need, we just don't need that. And it just wouldn't be natural for somebody to think that about every single person that they're encountering, because it feels like it's for the sake of the reader, which feels like overly manipulative and just feels like pandering to the reader. And even though this is for children, we still need to trust that children need to connect the dots and and make their own connections between all of these things. So the only people I think should be described are the pirates coming off the ship. Everybody else I don't think should be described. Just a smaller thing in the the first paragraph, it says, when I heard a bunch of commotion, excitement, and yelling, I would just choose one word here, ideally one word that encompasses all of this. A word that came to me was like cacophony. Like, I don't think that's right here, but you know what I mean? Like, what is one word that summarizes all these things? I just don't think we need all of those. The, The other thing I found a little tricky, which you wouldn't know unless you're seeing this project, which is this whole Izzy with the lowercase i thing. So when in quotations, the first time she declares her name, it says, quote, it's Izzy, lowercase i, z, z, y, closing of the quotes. So I don't know why before that she has had a chance to explain why she wants a lowercase i, that the book would naturally have her name as a lowercase i, because that's a trigger for me as a reader to think, oh, why does she, like, why did they typeset this with a lowercase i? I just stumbled over that so, so much. So I don't think you can start with a lowercase i until the characters had a chance to explain it, because if this is through this character's point of view, then they, like, it's, there's just confusion about, like, the omniscience, I think, of this, of this whole setup. So that was a little bit stumbling for me. I really liked the line about, maybe it was that in Tullamore there weren't any other kids my age. I thought that was a great tell about, like, how lonely this character probably is, and how badly they want friends, and that sort of thing. Another big picture note I had was just about, like, dialect and word choice, and how they would be speaking, speaking to each other in this world. What time period this is taking place in. They're using words like, the judge says, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard, Judge Lars snickered. Why on earth would your mom do something like that? So the choice of the word stupid, the choice of the word mom, and also earth. Like, if we're going back in the past, like, did they believe that, like, the earth was, like, flat? Would they use the word earth? Would the word stupid or the word mom? Wouldn't it be more formal? I just wasn't sure, like, where in time and place we were imagining this to be, because I thought with pirates, like, we have to suspend a little bit of disbelief and we're building another world here. So yeah, I just had 
a bit of concern about that dialect word choice, world building. I just really think we need to commit to something. And this just felt like we were kind of moving back and forth between a couple different worlds here. And I just really want to be confident about where I am and what I'm reading about. Wonderful, Carly. And it's especially important in those opening pages because, again, you want the reader to suspend disbelief. It must feel plausible for the rest of the story to work, which is why you really need to nail all of that in those opening pages so that it doesn't act as a distraction for the reader. Right, Carly, will you read us the last query letter? Dear Bianca, Carly, and Cece, I discovered your podcast in the middle of quarantine when I was working on an early draft of this novel. Hearing you critique other queries and pages, absorbing your tips by osmosis when listening on my walks has made me feel less overwhelmed and more dialed in on the beginning of the publishing process, not to mention it has made me feel less alone in my work. Girls in White Dresses by Jennifer Close meets Tell Me Lies by Carola Lovering. Novel X is a 95,000 word multi-POV work about market fiction set in Los Angeles that will appeal to fans of the sex lies of college girls and insecure. On the night of the Oscars and the birth of a major career win, Bridget Becker's boyfriend proposes. Despite the happiness of the news, the engagement sends an uneasy tremor through Bridget's college friend group, once nicknamed Henhouse. It's been four years since they graduated, and none of them are where they thought they'd be. Jane's boyfriend is desperate for meaningful commitment, but the trauma of her last relationship hangs over her, like a Kardashian's marathon on E, oppressive and inescapable. In a moment of either complete panic or total clarity, Laura quits her job, breaks up with her long long-term boyfriend Sam and backslides with her college hookup. When Sam shows up on Hannah's doorstep, newly single, fanning the flames of a long dormant attraction, neither of them can deny that what's between them is more than just sex. As the wedding date looms, so did the choices of the Hen House's formative college years, forcing them all to confront long-buried emotions, from an engagement party in Beverly Hills full of dark corners to a wellness retreat in Malibu where everyone is exposed. These once inseparable friends must reconcile before Bridget's Santa Barbara wedding. I have a BA in journalism and literature from a American University. I wrote this novel mostly in quarantine, for which I wrote a screenplay about a group of friends who spend a messy night in Atlantic City. A Jersey girl who learned how to pump her own gas, I have now lived in LA for five years. I'm still not over the palm trees and that salty, sweet smell that permeates the west side. Below are the first five pages of my manuscript. Thank you for reading. Sincerely, Sydney. Thanks, Carly. May I just say how much I've loved the sex lives of college girls? Such a good show. That second season needs to hurry up, man. Okay, Cece, your take on that. I'm telling you, it's all she does. She thinks about sex all day. Uh, okay. I knew you were going to say that the second <laughs> you started talking about this query. <laughs> I mean, she just fed that to me in a platter, right? Like, just here. Here's the comment you're supposed to make. <laughs> so I want to say that as soon as I read this query, I was like, oh my gosh, I have to read these pages because it just felt so great. I love all these comps, right? Like, I love girls in white dresses. I love Tell Me Lies. I love the sex lives of college girls. And I love Insecure. And so it's just like, yes, please, I, whatever you're writing, I want to read it. So excellent, excellent job. You know, what you said in the first paragraph about it has made me feel less alone in my work. It just means so much to all of us. Thank you so much for saying that. Okay, let's talk about plot paragraphs. This starts with On the Night of the Oscars. And that, to me, felt like the plot paragraph for the Greek chorus, because it's not focused on Bridget, right? Like, it's even framed through her boyfriend, like Bridget's boyfriend proposes. That happens again in the second paragraph. Jane's boyfriend is desperate for a meaningful commitment. I think you're framing this around the wrong people. You're supposed to frame this around the women, right? Because that's 
Imagine reading a query letter for the sex lives of college girls. Not that the boys aren't relevant to the story, but it is about the girls. So young women, I should say. So I, I think, revise this to ensure that we are getting each POV character, each of these young women, and the thing that happens in their lives. And of course, that the thing that happens has to do with their boyfriends. That's totally fine. Just be sure to frame it around them. I think that's my first note. And then while I love the line about the Kardashians marathon on E, I would strike it only because it's, listen, it's hilarious. I think it's so cute, but this is about the book, right? Like this isn't about you flexing your funny muscles, although you are flexing it very well. So for example, when Sam shows up on Hannah's doorstep, that again, it's framing it on around Sam, the guy, and not Hannah. And so when Hannah opens the door and sees Sam on her doorstep, something like that. So I think that that's really, really important in terms of framing it around the women. Love the as the wedding date looms because it's ticking time tension. It's tension surrounding an event, which is a very effective way to ramp up stakes in a book. I would kind of want a little bit more clarity on why the wedding is so important. It's because they're all going to be together. It's because, but you know, even if that can't be done without revealing something that's important, that's fine because I would still have kept on reading. Your only job here is to make me curious, right? And you have. So in order to give you the best chance of getting as many offers of representation as possible. My note is frame this around the women, but it's only because I am being honest here and giving you the best chance because it, for me, this is working. This is, this is really good. Awesome. Cece, thank you. Carly? I agree with everything Cece said. And I do want to say it again, because sometimes I think when Cece and I both reiterate something, then people are like, okay, okay, okay. So I do want to say, yes, cut the Kardashians mention. We don't need it. And the other thing I wanted to say was you're introducing a lot of names. So I always get distracted when we're introducing so many people. So I would say when you have as the wedding date looms, just remind me whose wedding it is. Like as Brigitte's wedding date looms, just add her name back in there to remind us of whose wedding we're looking forward to. The other thing I wanted about this Oscars bit, it says on the night of the Oscars and the birth of a major career win. So I wasn't clear if she is physically at the Oscars. I wasn't clear if this proposal was public. Was it embarrassing? Like, I just want to know, is this the inside? incident, I think is what I wanted to know. And a little bit more context around, and it can be really short. I mean, I don't think we need to like blow up this query letter or anything like that. But how did she feel about the proposal? It says, despite the happiness of the new, the engagement sends uneasy tremors, but it doesn't say how Bridget feels. And I think this just comes back to Cece's conversation about how we really do need to frame this about the women, right? Like your comp is also sex lives of college girls, right? Which is all about college girls. And so the fact that this isn't framed in the context of the girls themselves, the women themselves. Yeah, I don't know. It's just a little bit off, I think. So I I completely agree with Cece. The last note I had was there is something that says from an engagement party in Beverly Hills, full of dark corners to a wellness retreat in Malibu where everyone is exposed. Exposed to what? (laughs) Like When I think of the word exposed right now, I think about COVID. (laughs) So I just want to know, are we exposing their secrets? Are they exposed to a virus? Like what are they, what are they exposed to exactly? Who is exposed? I wanted to make a joke about exposure and sex and all of that, but maybe I won't go there because Cece's just going to make fun of me again. <laughs> oh, completely off the rails, completely off the rails. Okay, Cece, do you want to give us an indication of what's in those opening pages? Now everyone is thinking about sex. Good job, Cece. Your mission on earth is accomplished. Okay, 
So Bridget is on a rooftop watching the Oscars. She is feeling very anxious. She holds her breath while the envelope is being opened, and then she feels ecstatic when it's announced that the Oscar goes to Cassandra Latham. And that's great news for Bridget because she knows that the movie only made it thanks to her marketing savvy. And everyone knows it too, because soon the crowd is surrounding Bridget. We have executives and journalists and actors wanting to be fit into her schedule because she's such a genius. And then she's partying with her boyfriend, whom she adores. She's in love with this man. And in the end of the night, he makes the perfect night even better by proposing to her. And she is so happy. She is on cloud nine. So that is the plot. Great. Thank you. Okay, Carly, what was your take on those opening pages? Okay. So I want to talk about something I think we talk about quite a bit on the podcast, but I also know there's always constant conversations going on with this. I think on Twitter today, somebody else is talking about it, but is this a pandemic novel? Are we opening? Like, why isn't she physically at the Oscars? Why is she on a rooftop? And if this is like supposed to be like a COVID (laughs) pandemic Oscars, I'm pretty sure they just canceled the Oscars during the pandemic, didn't they? Like during the early years, the early years of the pandemic, like going on for a decade. So, (laughs) so I was a bit confused. Like this didn't have the, like the drama, the romance, like the dress, like Oscars are about so much more than the awards. Right. And so I was a little bit, I wasn't sure about what this character's relationship was to the Oscars and the Academy and like what all of that meant. This felt very much like she's at a rooftop party in LA, which like everything is a rooftop party in LA. So that doesn't really narrow things down. The other thing I had a bit of a trouble with this was anytime something dramatic happens to a character in these first five pages, I often feel nothing because I don't know these characters yet. So something like a big, a big win or a big this or a big that, or like a, you know, we open with a death, we open with anything. It's like, I don't know anything about you guys. So how am I supposed to feel invested in you if I don't know anything about you? And this again could be just a me thing in the way that I read fiction, but I I really need to know why this matters. Obviously winning an Oscar is amazing, but we are we're also not at the Oscars. We're on a rooftop in LA. So this just makes me think, you know, is this a pandemic pivot in this book? I, yeah, I just, I don't know if it's working for me. I guess that's probably my my uh, my overall thoughts about the opening. Yeah, I think I, I probably just need a different start. Yeah, and it's so difficult because we're always saying to writers begin with like the inciting incident with the most interesting moment, etc. And so I know that as writers, this is what you're trying to do. But again, it needs to be this important, exciting thing, but we do need to care about the character and be invested in it. So it is, it's such a difficult balancing act. Cece? I just want to say that it's not a Carly thing at all. It's a human thing. Like, absolutely. We we don't have context. And because we don't have context, whatever we're reading doesn't matter. So my notes, and again, this is such a cool concept, okay? But I felt two things. Thing number one is I felt confused because I thought for sure she was at the Oscars. But then she's on the rooftop of a hotel. Even in the middle of the pandemic, that would never happen. It's too hard to film. It's too hard to get the cameras with the noise of the traffic downstairs, down, downstairs, but like, you know, down below, and it just wouldn't happen. So she's at an Oscar party. That's the conclusion I reached. And I think that just has to be clear. I think that we need to know exactly where she is and what's going on, because I was expecting, first of all, I was expecting her to win, her name to be announced, which is fine that, you know, I, I quickly learned that that wasn't the case, and actually a good thing, because that's surprising. But the location thing really threw me off. I had to go back and read it again and be like, wait, what? No, the Oscars are held at a theater. Like, they would never be held at a rooftop. And even things like, 
we see Cassandra win, but then there's no acceptance speech. That's just not natural. It just, I, I truly think the authenticity here needs to be calibrated. I get that all that matters to her is how this affects her, and that makes total sense. But things like actors and journalists and, and executives swarming her in the middle of the party, the next category is being announced, right? Like, would they, is that what would happen? Is the entire party just for her? No, that's not realistic. So I don't know. I was confused. Take this as a grain of salt, because I, as I'm recording this, I am sick. So maybe it's because I'm slow today, but it, to me, made no sense. I did enjoy that she's in marketing and not an actor, because that, like I said, makes it surprising, and that's good. What I think really helped in terms of upping the tension was the line, and not just because of who my parents are. And she doesn't offer any explanation. She just lets us sit with that. So it made me wonder, ooh, who are her parents? That's, that's really interesting. And then my second big picture note is it's tough to start a scene where everything is working out really well for the character. You know, there's, there's, it's all going so well for her. The movie she, she's involved in won the Oscars. Everyone knows it's thanks to her. Everyone credits her with the win because everyone's swarming her. And her boyfriend is wonderful and supportive and he proposes to her. And so there wasn't any disruption. And scenes require disruption if you want tension especially opening scenes. Storytelling, particularly upmarket, requires imbalance and conflict, and there was none of that here. And I fully realized, by the way, that it's coming, right? Like, I fully realized that this is like, oh, don't worry. This is just so the reader feels like everything is going her way, and then, bam, something's gonna happen. But unfortunately, getting someone to keep on reading without that disruption is hard. So I don't know what you could do, because I don't know enough about your story, but I just think that something needs to happen. You know, a great example of something that happened at the Oscars a few years back is when the wrong movie was announced as the best movie. And, you know, people went up on stage. It was La La Land that was announced, but actually it wasn't La La Land that won. And, you know, in the middle of the acceptance speech, someone said, actually, we didn't win at all. And people started laughing. And he's like, I am not joking. Like, <laughs> this is actually true. So I don't know, maybe something like that could happen. I, I don't know what it could possibly be. Not my job, your story. I don't want to take over. But yeah, we just need, we just need conflict here. We need a disruption. And certainly something like that makes the character that much more relatable. It gives us like that personal universal element that we can imprint on because you understand like that embarrassment or that disappointment or whatever. And you go, oh my God, if I was in that situation, I would feel X, Y, and Z. So certainly it allows for the reader to connect and therefore care about the character so that when X, Y, and Z happens, we're invested because we have connected with the character. Right, so that's the end of today's segment. Like I said, for those who support us on Kofi, head over there. The monthly supporters will have access to six different critiques. Those who support us once off will have access to three critiques. Thank you so much, Carly and Cece. Now let's go to today's guest. This is just a reminder about the courses we've got coming up. On the 28th of April, Cece will be hosting a writing tension webinar at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. To sign up for those, go to my website, biancamaray.com, and look under the courses tab. And then you've all been asking me for another writing group matchup or a beta reader matchup. And so I've decided to do the great beta reader matchup. Go to my website, biancamaray.com, look under the beta reader tab to get more information about how to sign up for that. 
We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June, with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information, and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matcha page. And please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Today's guest is Jennifer Close, the best-selling author of Girls in White Dresses, The Smart One, and The Hopefuls. Born and raised on the North Shore of Chicago, she is a graduate of Boston College and received her MFA in fiction writing from the New School. She now lives in Washington, D.C. and teaches creative writing at Catapult. Jennifer's latest book is Marrying the Ketchups. Please join me in welcoming Jennifer Close. Jennifer, hi, how are you? Thank you so much for joining us. 
Thank you so much for having me. I can't tell you how excited I am to be here. I'm such a fan of the podcast. So this is this is a dream come true. I was so flattered when you first mentioned that to me. I'm like, Jennifer Close listens to our podcast. And so I felt so happy and so incredibly honored to know that. So thank you so much. Of course. I had a student first recommend the podcast to me, but now I recommend it to so many students. I wish that I had this podcast when I was querying because I think it is the most helpful thing to listen to all of you (laughs) read the query letters out loud and critique them. And it's actually really sort of changed the way I think about starting my own books when I edit my students' books. It's a really, it's such a helpful exercise and you're all so thoughtful and kind about it, but it's really, really helpful. So I think it's honestly just, it's the best podcast for writers. So I'm thrilled to be here. I promise I did not bribe Jennifer to say any of that. Like this is all genuine. I can now retire as a happy person. I am not retiring. That's a joke. All right. Well, Jennifer, not to be ungrateful because I know you just said some really kind words about us, but I am going to start this interview by telling you that I tricked you. So when we first touched base about you coming on on the podcast, I said, well, it'll be a very casual conversation. I'll ask about topics. I'm not going to prepare anything. And you can talk about whatever you want. I mentioned what's most helpful to our listeners. And that is still true. But before we get to that part, I actually wanted to play a game with you. I'm a huge fan of all your novels. I have read every single one of them more than once. That's how good they are. So I selected four quotes from your four novels. And I want to know if you can match them to the correct novel. I'll just read the very short quote and you'll have to guess. And because I have a theory, after writing more than two novels, authors don't remember their, their, their books anymore. Well, they remember their books, but they don't remember what line is from which book. And this was a challenge for me because there are so many wonderful quotes in your novels, but I couldn't pick a quote with a, someone's name because that would make it too easy. So are you I up am, for it, Jennifer? I am very nervous, but I will play. This is, what if I, <laughs> what if I don't do well in this game? All right, no, I'm ready. Let's do it. Let's do it. It's going to be fun because if you get it right, I'll be impressed. And if you don't, you'll, it'll humanize you. It's all good. It's all good. Our listeners will have fun. Okay. So I am not going to tell you whether you got it right or wrong until the very, very end. Otherwise you'll know by elimination. Okay. First quote, but in the end, she left it alone. He wasn't hers to know anymore. (laughs) (laughs) You have no idea, do you? (laughs) It's such a short line. Um, I, is it the smart one? No, you can't tell me, but I'm going to say the smart one. I, oh, good Lord. Okay. All right. Um, I will tell you at the end, listeners, I am so evil. Okay. Their arguments colored everyone's moods, cast a shadow over the house. If they were on good terms, everyone could be happy. If not, we all had to be on guard. I think that is the hopefuls. All right. We shall see if you are right or wrong at the end. Third quote. She was alone and she felt the aloneness in everything she did. But that was just at first. It went away after a while. Or maybe she just stopped noticing it. I think that is girls in white dresses. All right. Last quote. There are so many lessons about how to be a woman. Don't scream and please don't cry. Let your husband do whatever he wants. Don't expect him to help at home. Don't be a nag. It's a lot to learn over a lifetime. That one I know is marrying the ketchups. It's the freshest in my life. <laughs> it's why I left it last. That one I know. Oh my God, this game is hard. How did I do? Jennifer, are you ready yes. for your results? I, I guess so. Drum rolls, please. You got four out of four. Oh my they God. They are all correct. Yay. That is so funny. I will say too, I really don't go back and read for a few reasons. One is that 
I think you're always going to find something you want to change. And once it's printed, it's too late. So I think that's hard, but that is a really weird experience to feel like I didn't write those lines. So what a fun game. Oh, thank you. I am sorry to put you on the spot, but I just couldn't resist. Like, I'm like, I have this, this brilliant storyteller in front of me. I've read all of her books. I've annotated all of them. Like they're full of sticky notes and highlighters. And it's just really embarrassing and nerdy on my part. So I was like, I have to do this. But now that you've not only passed the test, but passed with flying colors, I wanted to know, you said you don't go back and you don't reread your work for a few reasons, because you're always going to want to change things. What has that always been the case after your first novel or short story collection, I should say, Girls in White Dresses was published. Did you ever go back? Did you ever read? Is this a lesson that you had to learn or is this a practice that you've always adopted? That's a good question. I think there, and I will say this, there are times I've gone back to read to read because I'm afraid that I'm going to use the same joke or line. <laughs> so I have searched it or flipped through, or I have gone back to maybe see how I did something, but it wasn't something I planned on. It wasn't something I thought it was just by the time they're done, I have read it so many times that it's just... I'm okay. It is, there's, there is this process where you have to just let it go. And, and I think that's part of it where it's done, it's printed, you read it at readings and then it's all done. And then it doesn't belong to you anymore. It belongs to the world. And obviously you've written like four novels. So I'm curious to know like how much of your process has changed and how much of it has stayed the same. Because I do know that one thing you and I talked about is when you are an aspiring author, meaning you're still writing, still working on your first novel, don't know if you'll be published or not. We have all these ideas about what being published means. And I think that one idea is very much like, this is going to get easier. So I want to know, like, how much has changed? How much has not? Has anything gotten easier? I love this question. And I also want to start out by saying, yesterday morning, I got a text from one of my friends who is working on her fourth book. And she was just in a complete panic that one of the parts of the book was going to be received badly. She asked me to reread it. And it just, it didn't make me laugh because I've, <laughs> I've been there. But that part never goes away. That sort of, that feeling, there's, there's doubts that come. I don't like when people say nothing changes because that's not quite true. And I think that's not quite fair to the people that are still working to get published. There are things that get easier. I think what's really important to know is that it's still really hard <laughs> and there's still doubts along the way. My process, I don't know that it's changed. I think I've paid attention to it much more. And the first book I tried to write, I never finished. And that was that was really where I had to go back and look at my process. I kept restarting it. And so now I just always say like, keep moving forward. You can fix it later. You can edit, but you have to keep moving forward. And for me, that's probably my number one rule. And really in the past, I would say, I would say it since I've been teaching, I've really started to pay attention to my process because I think there's things I can always do better, right? I think there's things that I can work at and just pay attention to where my weaknesses are and also then where your strengths are. I think that's part of what happens as you go. But the basic writing and the basic feeling and fears don't go away, which is good to know because I thought after my first book came out, the next one would be a breeze. I would feel great about it. And it, it kind of feels like starting all over again in some ways. And I will say what gets easier is then the more you do it, you know, okay, this is how it feels. I've said in every one of my books, at some point I've said, this is the hardest or it doesn't feel like this. And my husband has always reminded me, actually, you said that last time. I'm like, well, okay, worry about your own self, but thanks for reminding me. But it is funny. I'm sure that I did. It just 
when you are in the middle of it, it feels brand new again. It feels like this has never happened and you've never written a book. (laughs) So I love that. It feels like what you're saying has a lot to do with the, is this normal question that so many of us feel all the time? It's not exclusive to publishing by any means, but especially when I'm working with a debut author, I get a lot of CC. I just need a quick check-in. Is this normal? This thing that I'm feeling, these doubts, this insecurity, like, cause last week I was on top of the world and this week I'm feeling super scared. Is this normal? And I get this all the time. And some of my clients are like therapists because they work a lot on um, the nonfiction space and in the psychology field. And I'm always like, you do know that you're asking the question that you don't allow your own clients to ask, right? Like but you don't, you shouldn't frame things as normal or not. But yeah, the answer is always, it is normal, but at least you know it once it's your second or third or fourth book. Yeah. It's my, I tell this to all of my classes. It's normal. That anxiety is normal. Cause I do think there is a feeling, especially of when you sit down and it's hard to write and you think if I feel this way, maybe I shouldn't be a writer, right? Like if I feel like this and it's this hard, maybe this isn't for me. And I know, you know, this book because I just know that you do, but bird by bird kind of changed my life. And that's my first recommendation to anyone because it's so calming to hear this writer say, oh, me too. So much of writing is kind of like therapy where it's like, we all feel it. Doesn't that make you feel better? Now let's just figure out how to get over it. And I would say personally, the fact that you feel that way is actually reason why you should be a writer because it's not that the insecurity is helpful in the sense that it's a positive, like it's still so hard to feel insecure. But if you're always confident that everything is working out super well, then you're also not challenging yourself. Like, I think that's true of of any industry. So can you take us back to when you first decided to write Marrying the Ketchups? What changed from, from its inception story to now, to the finished published version? This book probably, not probably, this book definitely changed the most from any of my books. I had wanted to write a, a restaurant book for a long time. I, I just think restaurants are just like a hotbed of drama. <laughs> They're primed. I was a waitress uh, for a few years in college and a little after. And there's just something so wonderful about that world. And it feels kind of like there's a secret world with the servers that the customers don't know about. So I had always kind of had it in my head. I started writing it just little sketches and everything while I was still writing the hopefuls and the, and probably about halfway through the hopefuls. And I had some of the characters in mind. I had the restaurant. I knew where it was going to be. What changed, and this changed a huge part of the book, was 2016, the Cubs won the World Series and a week later, Trump was elected. And both of those things really <laughs> sort of turned my life upside down. For very, I know they seem very different, but I think anyone who's a Cubs fan remembers that feeling of, I can't believe this happened. And then a week later, it was like, oh, Jesus Christ, I can't believe this happened. And that started to work its way into the book. And it changed so much about it. It didn't change the characters, but it did change where they started because that's where the book starts. It starts in 2017. And then I added one other thing to it, which was that I had the patriarch of their family die suddenly. So it was these three things that happened within two weeks to this family that just sort of threw them all for a loop. And so that was not a part of the book when I started writing it. That really took over. And I think this book took me longer than any of my other books to write. I think there's a few reasons for that, but one of them is this storyline crept in and just sort of took over. It's so interesting that that storyline came in later because it felt so organic as I was reading the entire novel, really. Like it just felt like that book could only exist in the post-election years. Like that feeling of like a moral hangover that we all felt. 
So that's, that's very interesting to know. I guess one of my questions to you specifically about your craft, as a huge fan, I, I've read all your books several times, like I mentioned. We get, as agents, we get pitched quiet novels all the time. We've talked about quiet novels in the podcast at length. What does a quiet novel even mean? You know, suppose it's not really a novel that you're reading because you're like, oh my gosh, I have to find out what happens. It's more character driven. And even within the character driven space, it's more about the character's interiority. So you managed to do, a lot of your novels are quiet novels, or at least they perhaps could be considered quiet novels novels at first glance, but I could not put any of them down. I couldn't stop reading any of them. I absolutely had to stay on with these characters, even though, and again, in in all your novels, technically, I've once read a review that said this, this woman is passive. Pretty sure it was about Beth and the hopefuls. I don't actually remember, but I remember being like, I hate passive characters and I love all of her characters. So either this person is not, like, either I don't agree with this or you make passive characters work because I did go back and study what you did. And I understand what that reviewer was saying. The reviewer wasn't saying it as a bad thing, by the way, she gave the book five stars, but either you've, I think you've figured out how to write a quiet novel and how to write a so-called passive character because their interiorities are so rich. Like there's so much to learn from all your books, but the interior life, the inner life that these characters have, I mean, I'm thinking of Gretchen and Mary and the Ketchups, but really all of them. It's almost like you have more going on than you actually do because of inner life. What are your tips on writing inner life? What are your feelings at all this? Please feel free to disagree with my assessment, by the way. No, I agree 100%. The last episode I listened to, last week I was making dinner and listening and all of you were talking about quiet novels and it makes me not anxious. You know, I think the other thing too is the longer you write, the sort of, you know, again, where your strengths and weaknesses are. I love character. Plot is not where I, it's not where I shine the most. And again, it's something I'm trying to focus more on because I think that's part of it. But I like reading quiet novels. And actually the conversation was funny on the podcast because someone had suggested that maybe quiet novels were going to come back again, that maybe they were going to have a moment. Uh, That's so nice of you to say that you couldn't put them down. I like reading books about characters observing things. I like when characters are funny. I like when they notice things that I've thought, oh, I've thought that same thing. I am so happy to hear that you think it works. I will say my new novel, which that's so generous to call it a novel for what it actually is right now, which is just a bunch of pages. I am trying much harder to have sort of an exterior plot happening with all of that, just because I, I just want to keep trying something new. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I just am really happy to hear that you couldn't put them down. Beth was especially tricky. Oh God. Yeah. It is like, I'm paying you now to say these things, but Beth was especially tricky in the hopefuls because part of what I wanted to write about, which I think is a, a real thing that is, I mean, I know it's a real thing is someone who doesn't really have a big career dream, who isn't really that motivated and feels really lost around people who do, but that made her so hard to write. She was really hard because it was, then it was just like, well, what is she doing? So I'm glad. (laughs) So I've, I don't think I've cracked the code because I don't think I get to say that, but I have observed that one, your characters are always very self-aware. Beth is a great example. Even towards the end of the book, I don't remember the line by heart, but there's a moment where she's thinking to herself, I know that people are going to say that I am doing this and I'm accepting the situation and I'm passive, but I don't care what they think. And again, I'm totally paraphrasing. Your writing is much better than that. So it's self-awareness. It's also a huge dichotomy between the inner life and their exterior and the way they present themselves in the exterior. Like they're so much meaner. 
or so much nicer. They're so active in their inner life. And I think that's what you do. You create active characters who present as passive. I don't think you create, we write passive characters. That's, that's my theory. And also the humor, the humor helps. I want to go back to when you mentioned humor, because to me, it's, it's something that you do so brilliantly. Please, I need, I need you to give us tips and tricks on how to write humor. That is so nice. I, I will say, I mean, I love funny books too. When I was, I, I was sort of thinking about the last books that I loved and I love when people can be funny, even when it's about a more serious topic. I actually think there's a really great way to get it grief and heartbreak. I mean, look at heartburn is the best example, right? There are some truly just really sad moments in that book, but you're also laughing at the same time, which I think then the other emotion surprises you. I will just say I resisted being funny in my writing for years. I all through grad school- Mm-hmm. There was a lot of things. Yeah, I all through grad school was wonderful for me. And it also kind of rattled me a little bit. And I think there was a certain kind of thing that people wanted to read. And there was a certain kind of thing people were writing. And I was, I also in my own mind had the idea of what I was going to write. And it wasn't this. And then when I kind of just started playing around again, after a couple of years of really being just frozen in my writing. I I wasn't really writing anything new. And I started just playing around and that was girls in white dresses. It was when I realized like, you know what? I kind of want this to be funny and there's funny lines. So yeah, I would just say, I mean, I always love when my students have a moment where they realize this is where my voice is stronger. So I need to lean into that. So that's, that was my journey to that. It's so interesting that you resisted being funny. Like, I don't think you can help it. Wait, so you said you had this idea of what you should be writing. What was the idea? Like what, like, what did you think you should be writing? Big, sprawling, epic novels, pretty dramatic. I think it was a lot of what I read probably in college and right after. And then I started reading more. George Saunders then was a huge influence on me because he is funny and also heartbreaking and smart and a genius. Then I went through a few years where I just wanted to be him, which is hard because only he can be him. But yeah, I just, in my mind, I thought I was going to write these just lovely, dramatic novels. And these characters kept coming in and saying these funny things. And it would just frustrate me. And it was like, get out of here. This is about, you know, this is about heartbreak or this is about grief. And it was like, they just kept popping up. And until I really listened to that, my writing wasn't working. So interesting. I want to blame the patriarchy, but that's because (laughs) I always want to blame the patriarchy. (laughs) So you mentioned um, that you obviously teach creative writing. And I love what you said about how how it actually helps you with your own work because that's something that teaching does right like it's a wonderful thing and you know obviously you're you're a wonderful instructor Bianca has actually raped about what a good creative writing instructor you are and when you are a teacher you're learning as well as teaching that's always the case no matter what you teach so what are some of Jennifer Close's golden rules or tips or tricks or just I guess general information that and wisdom that you impart to your students Oh, I'm ready. I have these all the time. I repeat these so much and it really does help me because I repeat all of these things so often in my classes and they're things that I struggle with. And then I will have said it the night before in a class and I'll realize like, oh God, I have to take my own advice. So I will start. My number one thing is about scheduling and protecting your writing time. 
I think there's this idea that if it's hard for you to sit down, something's wrong with you and you're not supposed to be a writer. And that's just completely untrue. It is always hard to sit down. There is always just sort of that fear there that you're wasting your time, that this book isn't going to be good. And you can just sort of spiral in that space and never actually do the work. So I am pretty strict that every Sunday I sit down and I, I look at my week ahead and I block out my writing time. I have a paper planner and I color block with stickers, <laughs> but it is in there along with phone calls and classes and everything that I have to do. And just doing that and planning ahead helps because it takes away the, when am I going to do this? And then which goes to, why am I doing this? Should I do this? So it's just there. It's in the calendar. It just sort of stops you from thinking about it. And the other thing is about protecting it. The truth is no one else cares if you write. And I don't, that sounds mean, but what I mean is if I don't write today, no one else is going to know because again, what I'm working on now is so far from being done. So you have to really care about it and you have to treat it like a scheduled appointment with yourself. And it just, you have to keep doing it and revisiting that because sure, you could go to lunch, you could cut out early and go to drinks. You can take a nap or read the book that you're reading, but you're going to feel worse if you do that. And you just have to really stick to it. I will also say I write for time, not word count and everyone's different, but that's a thing I think is really good to pay attention to because if you write for word count, great. I think if that works for you, good. I tend to get really anxious about it and just only pay attention to that. And I found that a lot of really productive writing days have nothing to do with writing, like the amount of words that you're writing, I should say. It's sometimes about dreaming or figuring out a big plot point or something about the character. So for me, scheduling that time and knowing that whatever I do during that time is going to be okay. So that's my first thing about the, the writing time. I love that. To any listener, I'm sure that like we are really close to our listeners. So we know that everyone has like really busy lives, especially with the pandemic and a lot of obligations. I find that it is helpful to schedule that time, as Jennifer said, but it's not an appointment with yourself. It's an appointment with your characters and they deserve just as much of your time and attention and love and commitment as your partner, as your best friend, as anyone else in your life. And so really framing that in a way that it is an obligation to someone else might help you psychologically. I love that even more. I'm going to steal that because that's so true. And I will also say another thing, because like you said, people are busy. I always tell people too, to be honest, if you're not a morning person, don't pretend that you're going to write at six in the morning. I have never in my life done that. I can promise you, I never in my life will do that. Same. So you, yeah. <laughs> Team not morning people unite. Carly and Bianca are super morning people. I'm like the only one who's not. So thank you. Yeah. It just, you have to know what you can do. And for me, first thing I can do emails, I can read student work, but I need time to wake up. And the other thing I will say with busy lives, people, I think often think a half an hour is not worth it. 30 minutes is a long time. And if you set a timer and sit there, it's enough. So like never talk yourself out of it because you think, oh, I'll get started and I won't have time to keep going. So yeah, be honest about when you can do it and don't worry if it's only a small amount of time. That's better than nothing. I love that. I love that pearl of wisdom. So my next one is about moving forward because like I said, with the first book I tried to write, I kept starting over. And what I realized, I'm not an outliner and I really thought I should be. <laughs> I really thought that I should be doing this. So I kept getting to like page 50 and thinking, oh, I started in the wrong place or the structure's wrong. And I would just completely start over. And so now I tell all my students, make a note. You can edit, but you have to keep generating new material and you have to keep going to the end. You need the elixir of forward motion. Yes, I love that. 
Yeah. Because sometimes when you get to the end, that's the only reason, that's the only time that you see the beginning. And my next thing, which kind of goes hand in hand with this is revision is everything. I repeat to myself, fix it in revision, probably 4 million times while I'm writing. My first drafts are pretty messy. Again, I know everyone works a little differently, but mine are really messy and I just have to know. And I will say that's something that gets easier over time because I've seen it happen. I've seen that I can revise to get it closer to what I want it to be. So I stop worrying so much that it's just like nonsense on a page. So that's a big thing. It's just like, get the draft down. You can fix it later. I love that so much. This is my favorite one. I always tell writers to get a notebook because I think, especially when you first start a project, there's, for me at least, there's so much I don't know that if I open a Word document and write like one sentence down, then the blank page just stares at me in this really mean way. And I start panicking about not knowing where it's going, not knowing how it's going to end. But if I start in a notebook and I start writing questions like, what does this character like to do? What happens in this book? And I write down little scenes and snippets. It feels much more creative. I get much more excited. And I stay in the notebook for as long as I can until I'm dying to get to the computer. And then I have the notebook with me always so that if it's outside of my scheduled time later on, even once I've moved to the computer, I can jot down a note. I can take it with me. If I'm having a bad writing day, I can take it off the computer and go to the notebook. And my notebook, I probably have three or four throughout the whole process, but that's where I outline. That's where I start to sort of organize the scenes and chapters. So, and oh, also the other rule is you're not allowed to put anything in it. No to-do lists, no other projects, just this one. Do not write buy condensed milk in the notebook. I love it. <laughs> okay. I love those five Jennifer Closes. I don't know what we're going to call them. Tips, tricks. We'll think of something. Um, listeners, maybe you guys can give us an idea of what to call them. I know there are more, but one thing I really wanted to ask you is if you could go back to the very first draft of Girls in White Dresses, of your very first published book, and give yourself a message from future Jennifer, what would you say? Oh, this is, that is a hard one. But I think I would say, again, that was the book where I learned to lean in to write what I wanted to write. And I will also say, I don't know if I was just kind of kidding myself, but really when I did it, I had been sort of, I hate the word blocked, so I'm not going to use it, but I wasn't writing new material. But then I started playing around with this and I kept telling myself, this is just for fun. This is just to get better. And I think I would have just said, pay attention. This is fun because it's it's good. And it's fun because it's what you're supposed to write and stop worrying so much about how other people are going to perceive it. But I guess I could tell myself that today too. I love that. Listen, that's what I was going to say. Like how having fun is a sign that you're on the right track. That's super wise and also a great thing to hear from your future self. I love it. I love it so much. How much time, let's talk about time frames. How much time does it, I guess, typically take you? I know it varies according to books. So I guess if you want to think of one book specifically, that's that's okay too. But to write the first draft that you call the messy draft, and then how much time in edits. And throughout the editorial process, do you have a support system? Do you have beta readers? Do you have critique partners? Could you tell us a little bit about that? So this is an especially great question because... I will give you an answer, but I will also say that I'm not totally sure. I think it probably takes about a year to get what I call a draft, what most people would call, what the hell is this stuff? I have sort of a complete vision and then I'll start reworking it and rewriting it. I, in this, you know, when I talk about things I'm doing different, I am keeping dates and I'm almost journaling about my writing because this last book, like I said, took me so long. And again, there was a lot of life stuff that was happening. It changed a lot. So there was a lot of reasons it took longer. But I guess I'm just, when people ask that question, I sort of want to be able to know. But I would guess probably a year with a draft. As for readers, I, oh, and I'm so happy because this podcast 
it will be, it airs after the book comes out. But I dedicated this book to my best writing friend who I met in grad school. She doesn't know yet. So that's why I'm saying it. I have been so close to telling her so many times, but I just want her to see it in the finished book. She, so I'm Mariah Cleveland. I met her in grad school and we just love each other's writing and we understand each other's writing in a way. So we email almost every day. I mean, about other things, but also a lot of our emails are us working out our own issues. Like, oh, this scene isn't working. And here's why I think. And we, she's the only person that sees my super messy drafts because she knows my writing really well. She helps me so much during the process. She is a calming voice. She's a challenging voice. She is a wonderful editor. And so she's the one that sees the early, early, early stages. And I'm not afraid to show it to her. I don't think she's going to try to make it into something it's not. She's been there for all of my books and all of my writing. So I feel really comfortable showing her. And then when it gets to a formed place, my editor and my agent are both great readers. And then I have a group of friends too. I have three writer friends that I will send it to. So it sort of, as it gets, as I understand what it is more, I send it to more people. But Mariah is the one who sees the early stages and gets my ideas. Mariah is your Muriel. I don't know if you listened to the um, Lily King episode, but we read Writers and Lovers and Muriel is like essentially the Mariah in the story. The protagonist is a writer too. So I love that. Okay. You talked about getting feedback. You talked about trusting Mariah because she won't try to make it into something it's not. And I think that's a really good point because sometimes we do get feedback where perhaps so well-intentioned, right? Like this is not about the person at all. But yeah, someone is trying to make your story into something it's not. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience with that? And like, more importantly, how not, how to tell the difference and how not to change your novel if that's not what you want to do? This is a hard one. I, I think for me, I've tried to, again, know who to show it to at different times. Because you're right, it's not, it's not with ill intention. It's just that maybe they see something else it could be or something else in the novel is sparking with them, you know, that's not sparking with you. So the first revision notes that I get from my editor and my agent, I also know I have to read them and then take a few days. And I will tell you this funny story. My editor, who I've been with for all four books, she has written her own book that will be out next year. And she sent me this text one night and she said, do you hate me for all the notes I've given you? And she had just gotten her first round of edit notes. Yeah, I know. She had just gotten hers back. And I, anyway, I was laughing. I was like, no. And I promise also in a couple of days, you'll be able to sort through them in a different way. And just also, even if my agent and editor ever say something that I don't want to do, I also am aware of people who aren't open to being edited and I don't want to be that person. So I always just take a beat. You have to read them all, think about it, and then be able to say, I do not see my character doing this, or I do not want to cut the storyline. You just have to know what you're going to defend. Exactly. It is your story. At the end of the day, there's one creator in this world. That creator is you. And so of course it has to make sense and it has to resonate with you. I love what you said about taking a few days. And from now on, I am going to redirect my clients to this episode because whenever I send them editorial feedback and I start with like a very long editorial letter and then I mark up their manuscripts and I always say, we can have a call. I recommend a call if you want one. If you don't want one, that's totally fine. But only in at least a week. Like you have to sit with these notes for at least a week. And 
all of my clients, for some reason, it's for sure not me. It's 100% not my fault. It totally is. But they're all very anxious people. (laughs) So they're always like, but can't we have a call tomorrow? And then one in a week to it. I'm like, no, you can record messages to me that you can show me in a week. If you want to say mean things to me, that is fine. I will will listen to anything you have to say. But you must think about this for a while. (laughs) That is so smart because... It's true. It's just, you have to, you have to really sort through how you feel about it. I will also say it's really, I love that you tell your clients that. And I, part of why I'm so happy of the people that I work with, Jenny Jackson and Julie Bear, both of them will always say it's your book at the end, right? Like, like they will, you know, maybe argue for something to happen or say like, should we cut this? But in the end, it all comes back to you. And that's both really comforting and also nerve wracking. But yeah, I, you just need the time. There is no feeling like getting those notes, especially when you've been waiting for them. So I love that you do that with your clients. Also, all writers are anxious. I don't think it's you. Yeah, I, I do have that that theory, but I also think that you know our souls find each other because I'm super anxious too. So so I get it. I my line is always ambition over anxiety. You can feel both, but only one of them can take the driver's seat. Okay, well, Jennifer, I feel like I could talk to you for another five hours, but we are up on time, and I wanted to ask you as a final question, what are you reading? Can you please recommend us a book? It can also be a book that you're excited about. It's whatever you want. Okay, good question. I I will tell you, but I also want to know yours too, because I'm always looking for some. I just finished Black Cake by Charmaine Wilkerson, which I loved. People have probably seen it everywhere. It's, it, I think it was a Jenna book pick, but it was great. And it was a really good mix when we talk about what drives you forward. It had such forward motion. It was the kind of book where you'd read it at the end of the night and you'd think, okay, find just one more chapter, which is great. And I love reading those books because I think it also helps me think about my own writing that way. I also loved Ghosts by Dolly Alderton. I don't know if you read that one. Yes, I loved that one. It is so good. I have recommended it. It is so funny. It is, it's, it's actually kind of my dream book because it's, it's almost disguised in this funny way, but really it's about female friendships and dating and family. It's just wonderful, wonderful. And then this book, Let's Not Do That Again by my friend Grant Kinder. It is Oh God, if you like funny, he is- I love that cover. So lovely. Listeners, you can't see the cover. I'm sorry, I can't. (laughs) But it's really pretty and everyone should go look at it and read it. It is, he's hysterical. The, The kind of book that makes you laugh out loud. And it's just like, it's a great family political novel. So that's great. One more, which is Bomb Shelter by Mary Laura Philpott, which is Essays which I don't always read, but she's amazing. You'll be like laughing and then all of a sudden you'll start crying and she's wonderful. And I highly, highly recommend. Now you have to tell me what you're reading. The best (laughs) part about working in publishing is the free books. And and not because of the free part, because I always tend to buy so many copies of them anyway to give to people. It's the advanced part, right? It's like getting books before they actually come out. Again, the anxiety in me is is really happy about that. I think if anyone had told me, I mean, there are parts of writing that I'm like, this is better than I ever dreamed. And that is one of them that you get early copies that people just send you books. What a dream. <laughs> it is Sometimes really I'll wonderful. open up my mail. It's like, oh, books. Amazing. It's just the best thing ever. So I always have three books at a time because I'm always listening to a book. There's always a print book, which I can only read when I'm in my office. Because when I read for fun, I read at night and then I have to read on my iPad because otherwise the light just bothers my husband and my dog, mostly my dog, if I'm being honest, my husband would actually be fine with it. Um, So I am reading for fun at night, my ebook, a novel obsession by Caitlin Barash, I think is how you pronounce her name. It's 
the premise is so interesting. It's this this very young woman, she's 25, works as a bookseller, is trying to write a novel, is dating this guy from the UK. And early into their relationship, but not super early, she discovers that he actually moved to the States for a girl, for another woman, he, you know, his ex. And this ex works in publishing. And she's like, wait, how come you never told me that? Because he talked about their relationship as starting in the UK. And that's because the ex was living in the UK when the relationship started. So, you know, when you make all these assumptions, because you'd like put together a few pieces of the puzzle and you sort of make a storyline in your head. So when she does find out that this woman not only lives in New York City as well, but works in publishing, and obviously the woman's book launches in her in her store, the store where she works, she becomes friends with the woman without her boyfriend knowing, without the ex knowing that she is currently dating her ex. It's just, it's, it's so much, it's so good. I'm buying this immediately. A novel obsession, is that what it's called? You just described that in such a great way. And I just feel like it hits so many different, oh, great. I can't wait. Thank you. The novel I'm reading in print is Notes on an Execution. And Carly's also reading reading it. And it's just, it's, I'm glad I'm reading that one in print because I would probably devour it otherwise. Cause I would stay up late reading it and I can't do that. The print book. Cause again, I can't read it at night. I'm glad I'm not devouring through it though, because it's just one of those books where I want to take it in slowly, even though I also don't, I also want to finish it in a sitting because it's so, so good. and so unputdownable. That is on my pile to read. And I have been saving it because I've had a student told me I, devoured was the word that she used, which is just God, what a compliment. Danya is also, I was so thrilled. She's a lovely person. She's also an agent, which I think you probably knew. I was just so thrilled at the review she got and the times and it was on the, I'm getting the chills like it was mine, but it was just like, I loved her first book, Girl in Snow, so, so much. And I, I save books sometimes for when I know I'm just going to be able to sit all weekend and read them. And that's, that's on my list. So I'm, you made me even more excited to read it. It's so well-written. Like, it's just a true masterpiece. She is, she's a rock star genius writer. So the book I'm listening to is called Other People's Clothes. And it was actually Laura, my client, who is your friend who recommended it to me. And Laura was like, I think this book might be similar to mine. So it might be a comp. And like, it's so hard when my clients ask me about books that I haven't read yet as comps and I have to gosh, go out and read these books, like such a sacrifice in my life to have to read these wonderful books. But yeah, I started reading it to see if it would be a good comp, but I st- I'm still listening to it because it's good because I could have stopped if I wanted to. That's the other thing that sometimes when I'm reading for work, I will say for every book nerd out there, when you're like, oh my God, my dream came true. This is actually what I'm doing. When you're like, I guess I have to listen to this book because that's part of my job. So that sounds great. I'm going to write that one down because I love Laura's taste. So yeah. The things we do for publishing. <laughs> so hard. <laughs> All right. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us. This has been truly a pleasure, an honor. I apologize for fangirling so much, but I also know I couldn't help it. I love all your books. I will always, always recommend them to everyone. And I mean, not to not to be too shameless about this, but if you ever want a second pair of eyes in your stuff ever, like as a friend, just saying, you know, you know where to find me. I would love to read anything you write ever. Like your grocery list. I will read your grocery list. That is so, so nice to hear and never apologize for fangirling. I, especially in this time right before the book comes out. <laughs> it's so nerve wracking. So you have made me, you have made my day, my week, probably my whole month. So thank you so much. I am so happy we did this, this podcast. I just can't tell you how much I recommend it and how great it is to listen to. So thank you so much for having me. Listeners go out and buy Marrying the Ketchups by Jennifer Close. And if you haven't read her backlist, what are you waiting for? It is the best. Thank you everyone. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. 
here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who is in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com slash course. Use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com slash course, 
Use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlowaters.com slash course. Use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is CC. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.